All right. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to Saber Sims DFS Office Hours. Happy Friday. It is Friday, uh, December 16th. We've got a uh, big NBA slate on tap here tonight. We've got two days of football coming up this weekend, which uh, I'm pretty excited for. Those three-day Saturday slates here now through the end of the year, I think, or last couple of weeks, uh, we get those Saturday slates. So pretty exciting stuff. Uh, I'm covering here for Andrew again today while he is uh, feeling better, getting better. Um, unfortunately, I feel like I'm now starting to, to maybe come down with a little something. So a uh, lot going around, not not great news there. So bear with me a little bit here today. Got like a little slight cough, but we'll get through it. We'll answer your questions, talk a little DFS, uh, and uh, let's go ahead and, and just get into it here. So as always, uh, post your questions in YouTube chat or the Discord channel, uh, Office Hours channel in Discord. And we'll uh, we'll go ahead and, and answer questions here. So uh, let's go ahead and um, let's get started here. Uh, good one from Edub here as a place to start about uh, the DFS profit plan. Hey Jordan, if you build your elevators and diversifiers separately, then how do you recommend late swapping those? Uh, swap them separately or swap them all together and use twenty max settings. Also, do you think it's better to adjust min uniques versus doing individual player exposure for NBA? I currently do individual player exposures, but I'm trying to get talked into using adjusting the uniques for the first for time saving purposes. Yeah. Okay. So two questions here, uh, both really good ones. So for the late swap thing, um, you know, you can, I mean, I guess this kind of depends a little bit on how much time you have. I, I would say it's a similar situation pre-lock, but like best practice would be to swap those contests separately as well, right? The settings still the, the the value that you're getting of building lineups that are more optimized for the contests that you're entering them into persists after lock. That's still good. Uh, obviously certain, you know, with late swap, especially in a sport like NBA, sometimes you're limited on time. You know, you're getting a starting lineup that you really need for a team. The last second, the SIM runs, <clears throat> you need to rebuild all of your lineups and you've got five minutes to do it or something like that. Uh, at that point, the value of getting all of your lineups swapped with decent settings would outweigh potentially missing a, a game lock in your elevators because you didn't have time, right? Running out of time across the board in DFS is like the worst thing you can do. So don't don't force something in if you're not going to have time to complete it. Um, but I would say best practice there would be to select to still group those contests the same way you did pre-lock and build with the right settings you know, the generally the right settings for those particular contests. So kind of depends. Um, one other thing to note is that, you know, as, as the slate goes along and there's less players that can be swapped in and out of lineups just because players' games have locked, the, the differences in how lineups will be swapped between different settings will be smaller and smaller. So I would say I would be more inclined to start combining those builds together as you're swapping for later and later games and just use like a baseline set of sliders there. Because, you know, before the start of the very last game of the slate tonight, you may be only actually swapping 20% of your total lineups. And most of those lineups may only have one or two maximum players from that game. So the, the, the variety of different ways that that lineup can be swapped is a lot smaller at that point. So but I would say best practice would be to continue separating those out and swapping them separately. Uh, min uniques, my my favorite feature, like on Saberson period, I think, uh, truly. Um, let's build some lineups. Let's build 5,000 for fun here for the slate tonight. I have not used an individual player exposure. I'm, I'm, 
I'm being serious here. I have not actually used an individual player exposure for my lineups that I ended up playing into the contests once since we released Min Uniques. I think Min Uniques is by far a better diversification method. If if what you are trying to accomplish with your player exposures is diversification, I think you would be far better served doing it with Min Uniques. Now, if you are taking stands on players from more of a strategic angle of you know, I don't know, maybe you're fading a player because of, it's like a narrative of play or something like maybe you, they think the player's like dealing with an injury or, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Maybe you read an article and you just think it's a good fade or, or something like that. Like if you're making stands on player levels, then fine. I think uh, adjusting exposures is actually a, a, a fine way to do that. And I think it's very along the sim way of doing that. So that's fine. But if your goal is just purely differentiation, if you're looking at your top exposures and you think that's too concentrated for me, I think adjusting min uniques is a much better way to go about doing that. And the reason why is because <clears throat> basically when you adjust min uniques post build, it is it is the spirit of what diversification, it is in the spirit of what diversification is about. And diversification in in DFS, what you are basically trying to do is you're trying to accept the fact that there is a wide, there are a large number and a wide range of profitable lineups that can be played for a slate in general, especially like a 10 game NBA slate. And the differences in the expected value of those lineups at the top is probably very small. You might as well be willing to sacrifice negligible amounts of expected value, or I don't even know if might as well is the right term. You should be willing to sacrifice negligible amounts of expected value to diversify your lineups as much as possible within within a range of playing profitable lineups or, or similarly profitable lineups. So I think if, if your goal is diversification, increasing your menu mix is a great idea. Uh, I think there's a couple different ways to go about it. Uh, I think it kind of depends a little bit on how concentrated you want to be and how much you value your sorting method, right? Uh, you know, it it is, I mean, if you do one min unique, you are playing the top 150 Sabre score lineups in your pool. Uh, as you increase the min uniques, you're reaching further and further into your pool uh, to find other lineups. But a, the vast majority of lineups in your pool are going to be viable. And at the very least, a great deal of lineups in the, your, the top half of your pool are probably very profitable and good lineups. Uh, so that is basically, you know, increasing mean uniques basically does what I've described as the goal of diversification, right? Why play the top 151 when you can make sure each lineup has four different players from one another and you are still in the top, in this case, 40% of lineups in your 5,000 lineup pool. So... It will also help avoid a situation where, you know, I think Andrew was the first one I heard say this, but when you're trying to diversify by adjusting individual player exposures, it's hard to know what to do, right? It's hard to know what player exposures to adjust. And you can run into situations where you're using heuristics like capping your total global exposure at a certain level uh, or, um, I don't know, you know, basing everything off your pool exposure, which I've done. These are things that I used to do or, or basing things off 2X ownership, right? These are all just rules of thumb. Min Uniques will kind of help show you automatically which players are the most fragile to diversification and anti-fragile to diversification. If you look at these top three guys, Akongwu, Basley, and Wood, right? All similar exposure in our top 150. But you can see they're actually very, they have very different levels of fragility to forcing diversification here. Right with three min uniques, we we start sacrificing you know Christian Woods exposure pretty quickly, but Okongwu is is very difficult to get off of. And as we continue to increase this here, um, you can see that effect 
basically kind of become more and more dramatic. And you can't really, in this case, we can't get five new and uniques. You can't really just know that intuitively without kind of tr testing that out on the individual context of the slate. And this is actually, you know, this is even more extreme if we just do this with 20 lineups here. Right. So as we increase, that'll allow us to get more min uniques. So you can see, I mean, how much can we even get? We probably can get six. Yeah. So you can see, I mean, a Kongwu kind of stands up more to that forcing diversification than some of these other guys. Um, you know, another thing on the min uniques is the, the, the fewer and fewer lineups you're playing, the more and more valuable it's going to be to you to use this. Um, if you're only playing three lineups on a slate, right, uh, we can probably use six min uniques here. Um, and, you know, still play three lineups in our top, essentially the top 10% of our 5,000 lineup pool here. Lineups that are six players different from one another that are almost completely differentiated. Uh, and they're all still going to be theoretically very high upside lineups. So uh, I, I'm serious when I say min uniques post build is, is probably my favorite, like one of my favorite all-time features released on SaberSim personally for my personal process. Um, I, I use it every slate. And I, I can't recommend it enough. Um, you, you will often find that you get diversification basically for free in your contest by using it. Uh, for free, meaning by sacrificing very little expected value. Um, in terms of how I actually use it, like in practicality, I think it's kind of worth mentioning here. Um, so, you know, let's say I was playing, let's say I was playing 150 tonight. Um, I am not a diversification at all costs truther. Um, I know others are, and that's fine. Um, I think when last time I talked to Matt about this and, and maybe he's, you know, changed the way he's handling this a little bit, but the last time I talked to Matt about this, he was, uh, basically exhausting his pool, uh, with getting as many min uniques as possible. So you can get up to four min uniques with a set of 150 here. So that would be what was done, right? And basically with the idea that your entire pool is viable, the differences in EV from the top of your bottom of the pool is probably relatively close. Why not diversify at all costs? Um, my goal in general is I typically like to stay, I would say in the top 20%-ish of my pool sorting by my sorting method, right? Because I'm valuing my sorting method to some extent. I want to know that I'm playing good lineups based on the method, whether it's saber score, a custom metric or a percentile, I'm playing good lineups based on that method. Um, so if this were my lineup pool that I was taking, I would probably be around three min uniques for 150 so that I know that I'm playing still kind of the elite lineups of my pool while getting additional diversification where possible. So. Excuse me here, get some water. But yeah, I love them in uniques. And I, I was definitely, you know, if you watch some of my older office videos, office hours videos, like one of the things that I was always doing was capping exposure. Um, different heuristics meant to do that. Um, and honestly, what one of the things that Min Uniques has taught me is that you can often get the best, I guess I'm trying to think about the right way to put this. It One, you can get more diversified than I think people would expect. I was surprised to see that like on even an NFL main slate with 150 lineups that four or five min uniques is, is generally very viable and available to you. That was, that was That number was higher than I expected. Um, but I was also surprised at how resilient the best projected plays are to diversifying. And that when you, when you increase your min uniques, what you typically see is not that 
the best plays on the slate drop dramatically. It's that you get much more even exposure to all of the next best plays on the slate. And that's not how I used to diversify with player exposures, right? What I would, what I would have done in the past would have been like, you know, I would have taken something like, you know, maybe the, maybe the top maximum pool exposure, uh, or maybe the two X, the top overall ownership projection or some, some heuristic like that and set that as a maximum here. Uh, whoops. To all of these players. And what you will find when you do that is it's basically the opposite interaction. Oh, whoops. Let me turn this back down to one. It's basically the opposite interaction to how Min Uniques actually diversifies you. You're capping the exposure to the elite plays, pumping up your exposure to the kind of the next best up plays. Whereas often I think that the actual, the best way to diversify if, if you're a, a Min Uniques truther like me is to retain your exposure to the best plays and to diversify on the, the other kind of the, the next best up. So anyway, uh, the other thing to remember too is that they're compatible with one another, right? So you can actually still take stands on players with your exposures should you want to, and then kind of diversify at the end with mid uniques. So I don't know if I've managed to sell you on it, Edub, um, but um, I'm a, I'm a fan and I, I'd highly recommend it. So, uh, all right. Question from trouble here. Um, actually real, I'm going to, I'm going to touch on this first because this is a really good follow-up question. 12 pack. <clears throat> Do you have any concerns with min uniques effect on higher correlation sports? Uh, I, I think there is a reason to at least be mindful of it. Um, it's, it, there's an interesting argument for it. And so shady advice has presented this argument in discord before the idea that if your min uniques, uh, is getting <clears throat> large enough where it is going to start breaking up your stack sizing, you should be careful of that. Potentially the, the whole point of min uniques is diversification without sacrificing EV. But if you start setting min uniques high enough that it is breaking up your stack constructions, right? Uh, you should be mindful of the impact that that is now having on your expected value, right? So if you are building, you know, QB plus two stacks or QB plus two with one run back, right? It's a popular stack that makes up four players of your lineup. And there's nine players in a DraftKings uh, NFL lineup, if I remember correctly, right? Let's just build some lineups here. Um, here, let's build this real quick. Um, so you should be aware if, you know, if you have your min uniques cranked up to like four or five, you are not only like rotating, uh, players around your stacks, but you are breaking up stacks. So you could only use, you know, um, trying to think about a game on the slate here this week. You can only use Trevor Lawrence plus Zay Jones plus Christian Kirk with CD as a run back once in your entire set of lineups if your min uniques is high enough that basically once that combination of players appears once it can't be used again. So yes, I mean, I think it's something to be aware of. I do think you'll find though, at least in my experience that this kind of gets basically like this solves itself based on how deep into the pool you have to go to increase your min uniques. Like once your min uniques gets high enough where that becomes a concern, you'll find 
that you are exhausting your pool very quickly because of how just there are only so many viable stacks on a given slate. Um, so how many, I want it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay. So there's nine players in, 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 a, in a lineup. So in theory, if your main uniques is as, as uh, five, right? You start disrupting your four player combinations of the way that those can be applied in your lineups. If your mini is four, you start disrupting your five player combinations of how frequently those can be used in lineups, right? Like, so your QB uh, plus two with two runbacks start to get like theoretically disrupted or can only be used once with that given set of players. But um, again, I think this kind of solves itself and you'll see that like for that reason, exactly. There's kind of this point, particularly in high correlation sports around those numbers where this goes up like very, very quickly. Right. And it's kind of hitting on that, that there are only so many ways to stack the best plays on the slate. Um, and it's also another reason why diversification at all costs is not my end all be all. Right. I, I don't want to max out diversity here. Um, and I will often there's still on an NFL 10 game main slate, a lot of different ways to stack a lot of different teams in, in high upside construction. So um, I but that's why I'm not necessarily that's part of the reason why I'm not necessarily diversity at all costs. Uh Ultimately, it is just a very good thing to keep in mind in your process, right? You should be aware of the way that Min Uniques is interacting with your kind of stack groupings. Uh, I think the original example in Discord was about NHL, where, you know, if you are setting a rule to say at least three and at least three in every lineup, right? And in NHL, where you have these players that skate on the same line that are highly correlated to one another right? That are frequently going to be appearing when you stack, you know, Colorado, the way you stack Colorado power play one is there's not a lot of different diverse ways to do that, right? There are with the other players in the lineup up to a certain point, but within the stack, there aren't. So you should be aware when you're cranking min uniques up, when you get to the point where you're theoretically disrupting stacks in that way. Um, so yeah, 12 packs, as I saw his comment, I think he was referring to any core stacks or building blocks that could be broken. So yeah, and you can find that with your stack sizes here, right? So you can kind of see, so this, this is a two-player building block, right? This is a three-player building block. This is a three-player building block. This is a four-player building block, right? Basically, in terms of the way they fit into your lineups. So you start disrupting these constructions once your minimum number of unique players is number of players in a lineup minus the number of players in the building block. So it is, it is something I think that is worth being aware of. Baseball would be a really good example, right? Now, it's interesting because you have a nine-player lineup, but let's say you're forcing all five stacks, right? There's, there's only so many ways that you can stack a baseball team forcing five. The remaining players in your lineup, there's five remaining players in your lineup, right? Because you have three additional hitters and two pitchers on DraftKings. So if you increase your min uniques up to five, you're basically saying every single time you stack the Yankees the same way, one through five, maybe hypothetically, every other player in that lineup needs to be different. So you should be aware of how diverse, how, how diverse that is making you potentially. Um, not saying necessarily that that is a bad thing, but you should be aware, I mean, on a smaller slate, maybe that's, that's more impactful. So anyway, <clears throat> let's, uh, Let's move on here. Um, I did want to quickly touch on uh, this question. So this was from Trouble. Um, so following up on the pro video. So first of all, before I even answer, answer the question, if you have Saberson Pro, you get access to exclusive content. 
Uh, Matt and I just recorded a new one yesterday on ownership um, in uh, in DFS, how to basically navigate ownership. Um, it is in the pro channel in Discord. It is, uh, if you are signed in on a pro account, you would have seen a banner at the bottom of your screen um, showing it off. So let's, uh, let's see. I'm going to be careful in my way I respond to this because I do want to kind of honor the fact that, you know, pro members are, are paying for this exclusive content here. And I, I don't want to kind of give up too much of the goods here, but um, what are the biggest risks to using pro prod own and mean own filters Overexposure, uh, haven't fully processed through the limitations imposed. Uh, if you created a range for them and would love any input on the levers, these most affect, is there a minimum own cap you'd set or let the averages make up that to avoid double counting. Yeah, so <clears throat> biggest risk to using prod own and, okay, so biggest risk to using ownership filters, or I would even expand that to just filters in general, is uh, not accounting for the contest and the slate dynamics of the slate you're playing, right? I think those are the biggest places to make mistakes, is you're coming up with a rule, a filter rule, that at some level is going to be a heuristic, that is going to be a rule of thumb, and not adjusting that appropriately for the slate you're playing and the contest you're playing, I think is a very easy place to make a mistake. Um, that's going to mean a lot of different things depending on your process and depending on how deep you want to go into that. But a blanket rule that you apply to every NFL slate, for example, would be something I would be cautious of, right? Because you're, you're not adjusting for slate dynamics, right? Even for ownership. Uh, if they're, you know, we haven't really had this slate this year yet, but you know, there's, there's slates sometimes where you have such a spectacular, you'll have um, a min, basically a min, stone min price running back that's going to get all the work uh, that is 70, 65% owned, right? Um, you guys that have been playing NFL DFS for a while, the, the slate that comes to mind a couple years ago, the Jalen Samuels slate um, for Pittsburgh, he was like, that was literally that situation expected to get a hundred percent of the rushing and receiving workload uh, is 60% owned because he's min priced, right? That's going to change the ownership dynamics of the entire rest of the slate. So any rules you're setting should I think incorporate the particular dynamics of that slate contest is important as well, right? Like if you are, I think your, your ownership rules, you would want to be adjusting based on the contest you're targeting. The way you navigate ownership should be very different in a single entry 5,000 person contest than uh, the Millie maker, right? So that's those are two places to make uh, to be careful about. Um, in terms of you know dialing in and getting a little bit more specific here, I think the biggest. So I'll summarize this concept very quickly. We talked about this in the video that was released yesterday, but theoretically, product ownership is better than average ownership because it is uh, it is better going to account for the relate the combinations of players used together right products it's not perfect but you essentially get you get some ability to not measure only individual players or how players are or individual players used in a lineup but the combinations of those players used together right the problem with product ownership is it is extremely fragile at the very low end it is so uh a a uh, player being projected at 1% owned being 2% owned instead would dramatically change the product ownership of that lineup. It won't have as big of an impact on the average ownership of that lineup. So 
the and the, the main problem with that is that at those very low ownership projections, that's also where those where there's the most error in projecting ownership anyway. Right. If you say that, you know, all players are plus or minus five percent of their ownership projection, which is probably a, a semi realistic as, uh, assertion that is much more impactful at a player that's projected to be one percent owned than a player that's projected to be 20 percent owned. So that's the concern. there. So there's a balancing act between those those two. I think you have on one hand, you have probably the more objectively accurate measurement, but it is more subject. It is affected more negatively when there is error in the measurement. So. Um, I see a couple questions in YouTube chat as well. I'll get to those in a moment. I'm going to go through and knock out the questions in our Discord server first. Um, next question. Am I correct in assuming that changing a projection pre-build is basically saying the sims are wrong about a player's potential output for whatever reason? Whereas changing projections post-build are more of a what if this player scores more or less than their mean projection. Uh, yeah, I think that's a, I think that is a, a kind of a decent, like natural language way of describing what's going on there. Um, yeah, I, I actually kind of like that. You're, you're as an input, you're saying the true mean for this player is X. As an adjusting it post-build, instead you're saying. If this player scores this, what are the best lineups from the pool? Like, um, so yeah, I I think that's a fine I think that's a fine way to th to think about it. Um, I a lot of times with this stuff that is probably not literally true if you kind of looked at the way that it's technically applied, um, or there's probably a way to kind of poke holes in that. But I think that that generally makes sets so yeah i think that's i think that's a, a fine way to kind of to to think about it um <clears throat> let's see a uh, question here is is my own average filter the same as mean own uh let's see um No, it's, I mean, I'm a little confused. Um, so you can set my own filters pre-built, right? That affects this column. I, I think I'm understanding this correctly. So my own, right? Because that's where this is mentioned, right? You can filter by that at a player level here. So you could say show players with my own less than, I don't know, 15%, right? That's filtering your pool at a player level. Rogue says he's using sorting metrics. Oh, he's using custom metrics. Okay, let's go and look at this here. Um, let's see. Okay, so we can create a sorting method here. Oh, my own. Okay, yeah. <clears throat> so let me explain with these. So this is this is basically the this is at a lineup level if it's a sorting method, and it's basically how do you want to how do you want to calculate that? Uh, sum is the owner is this number. The ownership sum of the lineup. Um, if you do uh, average, right, that is the ownership sum divided by the number of players in the lineup. So in this case, the sum divided by nine. Product is the ownership of each player in the lineup multiplied all by one another 
to the power of one divided by the number of players in the lineup. So in this case, it would be every ownership value to the power of one divided by nine. That's what they are. Uh, they're kind of different calculations for incorporating the ownership of a lineup into a sorting method. So. Um, okay. A <clears throat> couple other questions here in Discord, then I'll hop over to YouTube chat here. Uh, does Sabersim adjust ownership for turbo slates also? Yes, we do. Uh, and I think that is where, you know, our method for ownership can be very, very valuable. Uh, because a lot of other sites don't. Uh, and even if they do, they don't update with news. Our ownership, especially for turbos, is essentially 100% automated. It updates as quickly as we run sims. And it's also taking into account aggregate like field projections of how the field is going to be play it, playing the slate. So yeah, and for showdowns too, every showdown, every turbo, the ownership projections are updating. So it can be very, very nice. Um, very useful if you are in every slate grinder like I am, or I, at least I have been uh, this season. Uh, okay, let's go to YouTube chat here. Um, Sojo says, what is EV and how should I treat it? EV is expected value. Uh, basically, it is uh, if you were to play out this slate an infinite number of times, how much would you return on your initial investment, right? So uh, it is basically a way to kind of <clears throat> see through the high variance of a single slate and identify if a lineup would be profitable over the long term if you could play that slate out many times in a row. So when we talk about expected value, uh, it is, it, it's kind of coming with the territory of understanding that the single slate results of how a slate may play out tonight is not necessarily representative of what the optimal strategy for the slate was. Uh, when we talk about things being plus EV or, or having a positive EV process, we're saying that person plays DFS in a way where they are likely to realize profit over the long term, despite short term results. Um, it is difficult in in uh, DFS in particular. It's difficult to quantify expected value precisely because of basically the equation of how you would do that. Expected value mathematically is you would take the uh, <clears throat> probability of all profitable outcomes times the payout you get when that outcome hits, you would take the sum of all of those outcomes minus the sum of all losing outcomes times the, the probability of how much you lose in theory when that outcome hits, right? So in games where there are, where it's easy to calculate those, uh, or it's easy at least to approximate those different values, the probability of winning values and the probability of what you win when they, or the probability of winning uh, outcomes and what you win when they hit, it's easy to calculate this, right? Expected value is, is pretty easy to calculate in like traditional sports betting. Um, with like a good financial model, it's like, it, it's easier to calculate expected value there. In DFS, it's very hard for a couple of reasons. One, there are literally thousands of payout positions in a given contest. And, and a lineup has an associated probability of finishing in each of those positions. But the bigger problem is, is that you're playing against other lineups in DFS and without knowing what those lineups are, it's almost impossible then at that point to calculate expected value. So people that have figured out ways to calculate this 
are often doing so by simulating not just the games like we are. We're simulating basketball games. They're actually also simulating DFS contests to approximate how, how likely lineups are to be played and then those lineups' chance of success in contests. So it's quite a deep rabbit hole to go down. Um, there are uh, approximations for expected value available out there. One, probably the most like basic approximation of expected value would be projected score of a lineup, right? A lineup that scores more on average projected score, sorting lineups by projected score, like every optimizer in the world does, is an approximation of expected value. It has limitations, some of which are projected score does not take into account correlation between players, how those players interact with each other in their ranges of outcomes. It doesn't take into account the, the range of outcomes of players, the fact that players do not score their averages all the time. And it also does not take into account the ownership of players. Right, since we're trying to beat other lineups in a contest, it's a point is not equal to a point. A player scoring with lower lineup ownership is more has more relative value than a player scoring with higher lineup ownership. So, uh, another approximation of EV would be Saber score, which is our answer to those problems with projected score. It is essentially a way of approximating EV while looking at correlation, ownership, and the true range of outcomes of players. It is also not perfect because we don't know the lineups that are entered into the contest. Uh, we can't precisely calculate the probability of your lineup in finishing in all of the different places in a contest. So it is, again, an approximation. Um, but that's kind of the long-winded answer there to the, to the question. So in terms of how should you treat it, I mean, in a very broad macro level, your goal should be to set up processes in the way that you build the, your DFS lineups that increase the expected value of your lineups. Um, at a very basic level, how should you treat expected value? It should be your goal to play in a way that's high expected value rather than your goal to try to figure out how to bink tonight. One of those is a sustainable way of becoming better at the game the other is going to leave you probably frustrated and riding the swings of variance up and down forever. Um, so it, it, I think understanding the definition of expected value and that it is a, it exists because uh, DFS is a high variance game where the, the most theoretically profitable lineups are not going to win every night. Um, I think that will, that will help you alone. Um, from there, there's a, a, a rich world of, of DFS strategy that we could go down to increase the expected value in different ways for different lineups, for different sports, for different contests. Um, that's the fun part. So I would say, you know, check out some of the other videos on our YouTube channel, ask questions, watch, watch office hours, uh, participate in the discord. Um, and you will probably increase your EV over time. So um, how should I treat a player that comes up in the test a lot, but is highly owned for NBA? Uh, <clears throat> this is an interesting question as well. I, I don't think there's necessarily a one size fits all right answer here. I would say general terms, I am more likely to be willing to play that player in NBA than other sports, uh, because that player is more likely to achieve positive outcomes in NBA than other sports. Right. If we look at like a Kongwu, for example, uh, his projection is 34.7. He's going to be, you know, 
probably higher. I'll take the over on 27 uh, 27% owned. He's the best value play on the slate. We're getting 100% of him. Relatively chalky play, right? He's 4.7K. Uh, he's even, you know, actually, let's look at his percentile. That's probably easier. 75% of his outcomes. Oh, they're not here anymore. Interesting. We'll go back here instead. Okay, so 75% of the time, he's scoring 28 points, which is still 28.5 divided by 4.7, 6, 6.06 points per dollar, basically. So like that's his, his, his floor, his functional floor, right? He's going to achieve his, he's going to achieve like high scores very often. And despite his ownership, he's probably going to be a good play in a lot of lineups and a lot of contests tonight. If you compare his range of outcomes to other sports, right, to chalk and other sports, you'll find that, you know, for example, um, baseball hitters in baseball, even very chalky ones playing in great spots, their most common outcome is scoring zero points, right? There's a lot, rely, a lot less reliability in their range of outcomes. Uh, golfers, very chalky golfers in PGA are still generally have a very realistic chance of missing the cut, Um wide receivers in in football in the best particular spots uh can have very low 25th percentile outcomes so uh basketball in general i'm a little bit more willing to embrace uh highly well very well projected highly owned plays um on a more practical like level um i would start by building lineups for for the contest that you are targeting and let the ownership fade slider help make some of these decisions for you. What's really nice about the ownership fade slider is it adjusts based on the contest you're playing and the sport you're playing, but it also uses the range of outcomes of the player in making individual player decisions and building good lineups. Um, so what that means is basically it, it will kind of on for every player in the slate, basically go through the thought process that I just outlined for just a Kongwu, right? Is like, what does this player's range of outcomes look like? What does their, their failure what is their failure condition for this slate and how does that compare relative to how owned they are? Um, you'll also find that, you know, it will balance out. It will do a good job of balancing out those lineups with other lower owned pieces when chalk is embraced in the lineup, which I think is a, a big part of building a good lineup is, you know, using some of the high projected chalkier pieces, but fitting in some lower owned pieces along them. And you can even see that in your exposure here, right? We're still getting to a lot of Kong Wu, um, see we're still getting to a lot of a kong Wu. um we're still getting to a lot of the chalk pieces but we have some like high high leverage spots here taking stands on lamello ball uh alex caruso randall right we're getting some of these lower on pieces in the build so uh late swap for nfl good or bad definitely good <laughs> late swaps <clears throat> late swap is always good to do strategically because you are updating for additional information you didn't have when you originally built your lineups. So yeah, it's definitely good in terms of like impact. Uh, your the need to late swap on an average NFL Sunday main slate, assuming that you're late swapping to react to player news is probably lower than your average NBA slate. There are sometimes things that come out post lock if we didn't have a certainty that Josh Jacobs was going to play, that would be one that I would be very uh, aware of and very prepared to late swap for. 
but I would say in general, there's it's less likely on an average NFL slate that there is slate breaking news that comes out mid slate compared to NBA, but it's definitely good. It's something you, if you're, if you are, if your goal is to play profitably, you need to know how to do and when to do it. Um, so yeah. Um, all right. Nash says, uh, yesterday we talked about doing research builds at 0010 on NBA contests. I did that and I was not quite sure how to use that information to build my real lineups for single entry. What do you suggest? Um, okay. So what I would recommend doing is looking for a few particular players. Let's do a 1500. I would say run your build. Uh, and basically the main thing I would use it for is like identifying maybe a couple particular plays that you want to make sure you include in your single entry lineup and maybe a potential couple of players that you want to make sure you do not include in your single entry lineup. I would use it as a starting point to build a foundation for the way that you're going to handle ownership on the slate. I would not treat it as a, um, as an end all be all, right. I would treat it as kind of a, a, a basically like literally a starting point. So I would compare the, uh, the pool exposure, or actually I would compare, I would basically look at your, I would make your number of lineups equal to your number of lineups in the pool. And I would look at your highest leverage and negative leverage plays, right? So a couple of players that stand out to me that look like they could potentially be over-owned, right? Uh, I guess our, our Christian Wood in particular is a high-owned play that doesn't show up as optimal very often. Uh, potentially Bogdanovich as well. Um, there are these other three players in between those two. I've noticed that in single-entry contests, the chalk tends to condense. So the chalkiest plays end up getting more chalky. The lower-owned plays end up not getting as owned. So those two players stand out as players that I would potentially like to avoid, right? Because they are going to be chalky. I think they're going to be chalkier in single-entry. And they seem to be a little bit overowned. <clears throat> then I'll look at the positive leverage plays and look here and see. I mean, a Kongwu will also probably be higher owned in single entry, but I mean, it looks like a pretty good play. Um, Lamelo Ball seems interesting, a player that you know may pick up a little bit of ownership here, but un looks underowned relative to their expectation. A lot of times, another thing I like to do is particularly look at high salary, high projected players that are going overlooked. So I kind of like the idea of, you know, maybe playing some Trey Young, Sabonis, Julius Randle, right? Um, some of these, these value players like can be interesting as well. But in particular, when there are like high, high upside, like stars that are going under-owned, those get my attention. Luca would be there as well. So I would probably literally just take notes here um, <clears throat> and kind of use this as like a baseline for thinking about ownership. So um some of the, I guess let's do let's do it like this. So uh, the the fades. <clears throat> so I would kind of proceed with caution with Wood and Bogdanovich. Um, so we'll call them fades. Bogdanovich, Bogdanovich. There you go. Um, and maybe some value plays that kind of looked interesting based on the positive leverage here was Nick Richards, Keegan Murray. Uh, Neesmith. 
uh, and then the the um, the studs that were kind of interesting here were. <clears throat> Oh, I guess a Kongwu, obviously, as well. Okay, and then, so, I mean, it looks like Lamelo Ball, Trey Young, Sabonis, Randall, and Luca. Trey, uh, Luca, Sabonis, Randall, and Ball. Okay, so we kind of have, like, an idea, right? This is just basically just, like, that's not our lineup. That's not what we're doing, but that's like an angle of, you know, an ownership-based angle of how we want to kind of navigate the slate. So now we go in and uh, build our lineup. Uh, we'll just build, actually, let's build 1,500 because it doesn't take too much longer, right? So we'll build this now. And we'll kind of see what we want to do. And we can kind of use this to kind of test things out and see what works in this build. Basically, the, the idea of a research build would be an entry point, right? An introduction to taking ownership into your own hands, essentially, right? Okay. So we have this up now. And lo and behold, oh, that actually, that often doesn't change. Oh, there it is. Okay. So lo and behold, two of the guys that I think are, are have a high probability of going over-owned show up in that first lineup. So I'm going to just uncheck Christian Wood, and I'm going to uncheck Bogdanovich here, right? And that's going to take us to lineup number 22, right? Uh, and let's see what this lineup's starting to look like. So, um, you know, it has, so it has a Kongwu, uh, it has Lamelo Ball in it, which were kind of some plays that we had identified as potential good options here. We faded the two guys we, we wanted to fade. Um, let's see, basically, let's say we wanted to get like one more of those like lower owned, um, like stud type players into this this lineup. So let's see if we can do that. So what I'm going to do is let's see if, let's, let's lock in Ball. Right, but let's also see if we can get Trey in the lineup. Okay, so we have lineup. So one we have to go to lineup one sixteen to get Trey in the lineup. Let's un uncheck him. Let's try Sabonis. Lineup forty six. So a little bit easier to get Sabonis in there. Let's try Randall. And this isn't like necessarily the way that you have to do this, but I'm kind of basically just testing the viability of some of these different plays. And Luca. 66. So a lot of these guys are actually pretty viable here. I'm going to put Sabonis in here, though, because it seems very easy to get to, to, to Sabonis, right? And now let's see, maybe is there is there a value play that we can get in here? Uh, Nick Richards was like really popping here um, in that positive leverage here. Okay, so we're at lineup 913, but there is a lineup here that fades the two plays that we were kind of the most cautious about, gets two of those lower positive leverage studs in there and probably our best ownership-based uh, value play in there as well. Maybe this is our lineup, right? This is kind of how I would use it as a way of, of identifying a single entry lineup. Uh, if you were playing, if you were playing like 20 lineups, right? Let's, let's, uh, reset everything here, right? Let's say you're playing 20 lineups instead of, uh, one, right? You can still kind of use the principles here, but maybe instead of, being really aggressive with your locks and fades, you're instead uh, managing your exposure. So maybe you're saying, I don't want to be over the field. I want to be half the field on Bogdanovich and I want to be half the field on wood, right? Because I think they have the potential to go over owned. Uh, and I also want to um, be over the field on some of these guys, or maybe even with the field at least, right? Maybe we have 10% exposure here, right? And we had... Um, 
you know, you may not be able to get it to every single one of these players, but maybe you're going through and you're managing your portfolio this way instead. So we're already over on a lot of these guys, but, um, and then maybe you diversify at the end, but basically the, the whole point of the research build, the whole goal is to take ownership, take like the idea of ownership into your own hands and to start kind of getting some ideas of how to basically make game theory based decisions on what players to use in your lineups. Right. Um, that's the point of it. It's not required because the ownership fade slider is going to help you do that selectively here based on the sport that you're playing. But if you want to kind of be more intentional about the way you take advantage of ownership in your DFS contest, I think that's one way to do it. So. So there's a follow-up question here. What is handling ownership mean? So basically the whole idea, the, the whole point of ownership here is that playing the highest projected lineups as possible, best as possible, is often not the optimal strategy in DFS because even if that lineup is very successful, you will be competing against a large number of lineups in your contest that share a lot of those same players. So while scoring points is good, scoring points that are not shared by many other players in your lineups is better, right? In practice, <clears throat> there's often a balancing act of how many points... Actually, well, hold on. Let me... The problem with that is that... Uh, at least DFS now in 2022, most players are pretty good at identifying the highest projected plays. So the best projected plays often are going to be the highest projected owned plays, right? At least most of the time in most of the popular sports. So we often have to sacrifice raw point projection, the best possible plays to play players and lineups that are maybe slightly lower average projected, that have a, a slightly lower expectation, but remove re drop their lineup, their overall ownership of that lineup dramatically. And we're basically saying, I'm willing to sacrifice a bit in terms of average projection to make it so when this lineup succeeds, there are far fewer lineups that it is competing with in the pool because those points are not shared by many people. So when I say you're handling ownership, I'm basically saying you are building lineups with that in mind. You're building lineups that <clears throat> have a high that maintain their probability of their that roughly maintain their probability of raw scoring output, but do so at lower overall ownership in your contest. That's like what handling ownership means. So when we talk about the research builds, this is a tool to identify players who basically, when we go back to the research build, right? You can almost think about ownership as a price you have to pay to use that player similar to salary, right? So when you're, okay, an ownership just updated. Um, I had a feeling it did. So when you choose to roster a Kongwu, you are rostering him at 4,700 4, salary and also at approximately 63% ownership. That is a, that's kind of a factor in when you're constructing that lineup. You're playing this player and you are sharing all points he scores with 63% of the other lineups in the contest. Right? It's, it's essentially a secondary cost of rostering that player. So the point of the research build 
is to potentially identify players just like value shows you players who are inefficiently priced based on salary. Leverage in a research build on 0010 when your lineup pool is equal to your total pool shows you players that may be potentially uh, under or overpriced based on their ownership, right? Because they are appearing in more lineups in the contest than their the rate at which they are optimal. Now, the, the problem here, uh, or the, the, the place to be careful, is that this number is a fact. That salary will not change. We know that. So we can be confident about, we can be more confident about value. This is an approximation. Well, let me back up a little bit. This number is a fact. We know that this is the salary. This is a projection, right? We are, we are basically assuming, based on our sims, that this is the average outcome. So there is some uncertainty in the value column, right? We're saying if this is the average based on this fact, then that's the point, that's the return you get per dollar invested of DFS salary on this player. In the case of a research build, both of these are unknowns or or they're both projections, right? This is what we expect the field to do. And this is how often we expect the player to show up in the optimal, but there's error on both of these. So this number, the, the result of that number is a little bit fuzzier than value but it's still a useful tool here, right? So basically you're, it is a way to essentially create an equivalent of what the value column does for player projections and salary to player optimal rates and ownership. So I feel like I, I, I overcomplicated the, the question here once again, but basically handling handling ownership is understanding that ownership is a factor in lineup quality and dealing with it accordingly. And this research build is one potential way to kind of basically do that for yourself. The ownership fade slider does a lot of this kind of thinking for you. But the ownership, so a lot of this is kind of somewhat, I guess, automated for you in the Saberson process. If you want to pull the curtain back and say, I want to have more of a hands-on approach to the way that I'm navigating ownership in my lineups, I think this is one way to do that. So, uh, Tech tech said, are there plans to add game logs and snap counts for each player to save or sim? People have asked about this. Uh, I think we have floated the idea of like just kind of having more data like that up on the app or even maybe potentially in like kind of a different site under the SaberSim umbrella for a while. Um, I don't think it's very high priority at the moment, uh, mostly because there are other sites that do this like very well. Like this information is available out there on Football Reference and other sites like that very readily. I know it's not perfectly integrated into SaberSim if you kind of, uh, you know, like uh, like one pot recipes, right? Um, but uh it's it's something we've talked about. It's something we've kind of kicked around. I, I I wouldn't expect it in the near future while we're building out features that we feel like only we have or only we can do well. Um, whereas this is something that is kind of a crowded market there. So, all right, all caught up on questions. Um, my voice is starting to go on me. So I think I'm going to go ahead and cap it off there. Uh, appreciate everybody tuning in here today. Uh, if you watched Wednesday and, and Thursday as well, um, appreciate you guys all hanging out with me. It was it was nice to do a couple of these. Been a while since I've done the office hour stream. So uh, it was kind of fun. 
Uh, Andrew should be back on Monday. Um, and otherwise, enjoy the NBA slate tonight. Enjoy football this weekend. And uh, we'll talk to you guys all soon. Take care.